So if you've lived, let's say, at least a handful of years where there's two digits in your age, uh, probably more into the teen category and beyond, you probably have experienced a moment where you've been wooed. Do you know that term? To woo someone? To woo a heart? Think about the first time that maybe somebody tried to woo your heart. I can remember being in middle school, and it was the first time that somebody actually tried to woo my heart. They were, it was a freshman girl that was interested in me as a seventh grade guy. That is like extremely, what should I say, exciting for a middle school young man. And, uh, and so, and she did certain things that definitely gave signs that she was interested. And then about that time, I showed interest back, she moved on. <laughs> you know, that whole wooing journey has with it its precarious moments, certainly. But there was, in my life, uh, no greater story of wooing that, that, that I experienced than with my wife who's sitting up front. Now, I will tell you, it wasn't all the greatest start, per se. The, the, the reason why we're even able to meet was that a young man said, uh, that, who knew us both, said, uh, you need to meet each other. And uh, I had been engaged just six months before, so I was not interested in any new love relationships. And, and uh, finally, he manipulated the situation by saying, well, she wants to work in the youth ministry this summer, so you need at least interview her for that. So, as a youth pastor, my first occasion meeting my wife was to interview her for a youth position. So, we meet at this mutual friend's house, and I did not get a word in, if you can imagine that. So, he talked the entire time. I'm sitting on the couch next to her, and we get to say nothing to each other. So the night kind of comes to an end once he ran out of breath, and, and it was now late, and so uh, it was time to go, and this was, you know, it was in the middle of winter in February, and so it was cold outside. She went to get her coat, and as she's getting ready to put her coat on, I helped her with it. That wooed her heart. <laughs> that was the first sign that really caught her attention, that this might be somebody that would be interesting uh, for her to pursue. And then for me, that first moment was as I walked her out the door to her vehicle, I realized that she'd showed up in a full-size diesel Chevy Blazer. That wooed my heart. <laughs> Growing up in the plains of Kansas, you know, the bigger the vehicle, the more, you know, swag you had, so to speak. And so it was, it was fun for me to see that, you know, this beautiful, petite girl is, you know, she's driving big vehicles and not afraid to do so. And so that really kind of caught my attention. And so that began a series of doing little things that woos each other's hearts. And after a little bit of a hiccup in the story, uh, it, where, where basically I had a little bit of cold feet, there came a moment where in response to my indecision, she handled it with such class, grace, and patience and kindness rather than condemnation and frustration and so on. And so as a result, I realized that is a woman I do not want to let go. 
And so as time went on, different things happened, and we discover what really draws each other's heart. I discovered that doing little acts of kindness along the way means a lot, or words that are unexpected, coming at an unexpected time, means a lot. Her learning how to cook and feed me well was part of my love language of her wooing my heart. There, was many there were many things that built the love. And yes, even over time, you discover through hardship in the journey, because things aren't always easy, you discover that in the high points, there's things to celebrate when kids come along. You know, that again drew our hearts closer. And then when cancer came into uh, her life, then, and, it, and it therefore came into our relationship, again, it created a strengthening of the love. All this is a part of a journey. Love does not just simply happen overnight. It's something that grows. And much is the same about our relationship with God. It begins somewhere, and over time, God woos the heart. And we're going to look at that today as part of the series where we're looking forward to say, before we go into this next chapter as a church, we want to make sure that it is understood what is what makes this church. Last week we looked at that we are about pursuing and praying for a harvest. That we believe that Jesus spoke to many times and, and uh, as a church we prayed for many times. Creating space so that we, because we expect a harvest. And that harvest is about souls. And so for us, we have a vision to see and many souls come to Jesus. And that comes through us sowing seeds of the gospel, the story of the good news about what Jesus has done for each person. But today, I want to speak to that all of this is for not if it's not birthed out of a love relationship with Jesus. It truly is all about Jesus. So I'm going to have you turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. And if you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers are walking down now with Bibles and just put your hand up and they'll give you one. If you do not own a Bible, please take this as your own. John chapter 3, and, and the passage is quite frankly a passage that is very popular, particularly one verse. But I want to read with it two additional verses as we do so. And that's verses 16 to 18. And this will be found on page 949 in the Bibles that were just handed out. So let's read this very popular verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the context is this. The story of the cross, the story of an empty tomb, the story of a man named Jesus Christ, all begins because the creator God of the universe said, I love those whom I have created. You see, he created mankind to be like him and having the ability to have relationship. Nothing else in all of creation has the level of ability for relationship like you and I 
do. And, and that's made in, inherently from how God interacts with his son, Jesus Christ. And so in that, there is a harmony of relationship that God created us for. It was perfect in the beginning. There was nothing to separate them. There was complete intimacy and unity between God and man. Man then created a problem. There was only one thing that God had told them not to do. And that was to eat of a tree that was called the knowledge of good and evil. Being tempted. Being deceived. They were appealed to by Satan himself to say, Why do you think God would not want you to eat of this tree that would give you the knowledge of good and evil? Because God's afraid that if you know what he knows, you'll be like him and therefore a threat to him. So Satan appealed to them saying, You could be just like God and just as powerful. So it was a manipulation. They wanted to be like God. But they didn't realize they were already like God in their purity and holiness. And that which they did not know, God didn't want them to know because it would destroy everything. They made the faithful decision and partook of that tree. And as a result, you and I have been born with that same seed of sin. Anything that would set itself up against God becomes sin. Anything that we love more than God becomes sin. So even the love of a child can end up becoming something of sin if that child is withheld from God and his leadership. A spouse can become a, a, an act of sin, the relationship, if that spouse is withheld from God. Everything can become corrupted if you say to God, you can have anything but not this. Whatever that might be. Then there are the obvious things, lying, cheating, killing, those are the obvious things that we would say are sin, but it, it really is anything that we would say is more important to us than God. But God did not stand there and say, now all things are lost. They have messed up what I had intended. I'm going to start over. God didn't say that. But instead, he chose out of his love for that which he's created to reconcile us back to him, which then meant there would be a time when a sacrifice would be all capable of covering sins, past, present, and future. But until then, he's going to give them a means to make them aware that they have fallen short. So temporary sacrifices were done over the centuries to cover sins temporarily. The killing of a spotless lamb. And ultimately... That the idea of practicing that over and over and over, acknowledging that they fall short of God and there's nothing they can do to ultimately, on their own, fulfill forever the, the, the judgment that was deserved of them. So in the end of the day, it required an action of God to fix the problem. Now God chose to offer love as his action not condemnation. That's why you see in this that he says, God so loved the world that the thing that was most precious to him, his son Jesus Christ, was the very person that he was going to offer up for the objects of his love, you and I. So he didn't send the son into the world to come and bring judgment. He sent the son into the world to pay for that which we were worthy of in judgment. 
And so Jesus becomes the manifestation of the love of God. Can you consider any kind of love that would be on par with this kind of love? Where you would choose to give of that which is most precious to you, a child, a son, a daughter, for the sake of another person who would despise you and hate on you. Would you ever do that? Perhaps you might give of yourself for the sake of another, but not likely for a person that has ridiculed you, mocked you, or treated you horribly. You might give of your life for a spouse, a child, or for maybe a good friend. But in this case, God gave up his son, that which was most precious to him, for the sake of those who did not love him back. That is a love that is beyond any of us. And that Jesus, his son, came and then lived a life of love, a model of the love of God to those of us. His words were not of condemnation, but yes, there was warning to say that you must reconcile to God through me and me alone. There is no other path. But otherwise, Jesus modeled the love of God every day by the way he interacted with people. Keep in mind, he was accused of hanging out with those who were the worst of sinners, those of the worst of reputation. That's the kind of people that Jesus ministered to regularly. He wanted to show that the unlovely were still loved by God. Consider John chapter 13, just a few pages to the right, if we could turn there. This is the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and arrested and the following day, just hours later, would, would die on the cross for you and I. An important moment happens where he wants to show the fullest extent of love. It is very precious when God gives us the opportunity, knowing our death is imminent, to speak to those we love. I know that, that many stories have come since I've been pastor here of where spouses have passed away and they were had the opportunity to speak one last loving statement to those they loved. We hold on to those such words. I hold on to words that I heard from my grandfather before he passed and from other people that have been in my life that have passed. I hold on to those last words of love that they offer. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He knows he's about to leave them. And he wants them to experience his love in the greatest measure possible before the love that is displayed the next day through his death. So beginning in verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the evening meal was in progress, and the, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He's about to die. He has spent three years with this group of people. He wants to show the greatest extent of his love. But also what's going on inside of him is that God has revealed to him in this moment that all power and authority I have now given to you. 
There is nothing in this moment that God, Jesus could not accomplish that God wouldn't say, good, this is good. So Jesus has this power and authority. So what does he do out of love and with this power and authority? He takes off the outer coat, which is part of your identity. He goes down to what would be a simplistic undergarment, which would be left for those who are servants and slaves. And then he has an opportunity to either display love like a servant, which a higher role servant might be to have welcomed them to their places at the table, to have opened the door, maybe to have served food. Or he could take the lowest servant's role, or in some household, the slave's role, and actually wash their feet. You see, there was often a basin for them to wash their hands as they came in. But to touch their feet was considered something very beneath them. And so it was a slave that would wash each person's feet so that as they reclined at the table, both hands and feet would be clean. After all, they wore sandals on dusty roads, so those feet were not something to behold. But yet Jesus... Stripping himself of any kind of identity that would say, I'm the one in authority or the guest of honor. He says, I want to be your slave to show you my greatest act of love. So he washes their feet. This was a struggle for them because they knew that they would never do that for themselves. And these were fishermen. These were former tax collectors. These were people that were already considered in some ways way higher than that of a slave but yet have been rejected because they followed Jesus but for this they could not stand why would the greatest among them choose to become the least again he wanted to show them the greatest love to the end you can see that this impacted them because as time goes on, you see throughout the writings of Scripture how great is the love that he displayed. You hear that over and over, that the love of Jesus was on display regularly. Later on, Jesus at the same table in verses 34 and 35, he makes sure and commissions them with this. And this is kind of considering the, the final command, if you will, to this group before he leaves them. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus has just shown he will go to a great end to show love to these men. But the next day, he was going to show the fullest extent of his love by dying for all men and women, past, present, and future, so that they could have reconciliation between them and God. What great love Jesus had. And he says, if you have a love relationship with me because I've gone first, then the natural byproduct of that is that you'll begin to become a loving person towards other people. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Paul says in Ephesians 5, in speaking to the church of, of, of Ephesus, he says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So John says multiple times, you know, we love because he first loved us. And then Paul says, we need to follow the example of God as dearly loved children. I mean, the Father has lavished a love on you and I that is beyond words. And so therefore, he says, walk in the way of love. That is going to be the marker by which we are known. He says, people will know you are my follower. The word disciple means follower. They will know you are my follower by the fact that you live a life of love. So as we shared last week, our vision is to see a harvest come through of many disciples being made. But a disciple, a follower of Jesus looks like this. They love God with all of their heart. And as a result of loving God, they love people with all of their heart. And they do so informed by knowing the truth of God as informed by Scripture. And therefore we proclaim it both in life and in word. That is what a follower of Jesus looks like. That's where we get those eight words, love God, love people, live truth, and proclaim Jesus. We discern that as we looked at the life of Christ because that's what Christ modeled for us. And he says, do as I have done. He loved his father. He loved the people that his father had given him. And he has commissioned us to do the same. And then we do so knowing how to do it. We do it by study of the word and knowing the life of Jesus. We study it. We study the things that were taught by the apostles and we apply it to our life as a, as a testimony to those pointing the way to Jesus. But this requires a transformative work in us because quite frankly, you and I, by our innate senses, the way we love usually is conditional. We love conditionally. We love those who will love us back. We love those when we know that there will be a good return. We love those who are lovely. We struggle to even be around those who are unlovely in attitude, maybe even in appearance. But that's not the same with God. Consider what you were the first time you encountered God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, consider what you were the first time you felt the love of God. For some of you, maybe you were a child. And so, therefore, you don't have that. But many of you, you didn't know anything about God. You lived your life in rebellion towards him. Even for me, I knew Jesus at a young age. I accepted him at a young age. But it wasn't until my mid-teen years that I understood what him as Lord looked like. In, the, in between time, my heart was not in a good place. You see, I'm not built to love unconditionally the way Jesus did. It needed, my life needed a transformative work. I love conditionally. And I'm still tempted to do so today. But it's the love of God that I've studied that, that over time has helped my heart to see things differently than what I used to see them. So John takes this on when he writes his first, his second, his first epistle, which is in 1 John chapter 4. So if we could turn over there, uh, that would be great. So it's towards the end of your Bibles, and the Bibles we handed out, it'll be page 1148. So turn to 1 John as he continues talking about 
this act of love. We're going to read quite a few verses here. It's going to be verse 7 to 21. And it begins with this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him. And he in us, he has given us his spirit. And, when, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone then acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And by the way, it's not talking about your literal siblings. It's referring to those of us that are human, brothers and sisters alike. So this transformative work, what he's speaking to, is actually a progression that you can see how John has written this. First of all, in verses 7 to 8, notice he says, God is the birth of love. He is the one that it initiates this whole idea that love is even found in mankind at all. So he is the one that bursts this idea of love in the first place. And then love becomes something alive through the work of Jesus Christ. This happens, according to verse 10, when God goes first through the loving sacrifice of Jesus, then we get this opportunity to pay for that love. So again, let me track back. So love is created and birthed in God himself and made alive by Jesus. And as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus, the love that is given to you and I so that we can have a relationship between us and God, we now have the opportunity to pay that forward. That's what verse 11 speaks to. And then in verses 12 and 13, we know this by the work of the Holy Spirit of God as God's evidence of his love. And so then we live out that love with against its greatest enemy. And it mentions this word, and I want to park here for a moment, the word fear. So if fear is the enemy of love, 
we have to ask ourselves, why would God be saying that love casts out fear? So let me ask this question of you, and it's not rhetorical, so you can say it out loud. When somebody operates under fear and they let fear guide them, who is being considered in that moment? Yourself. When you operate under fear, fear is the self-preservation mechanism that is built within us. Now, there's some healthy points of that. Being fearful of fire is a good thing. Being fearful of going too fast while driving the car is a good thing. There are good points to fear. But when fear gets utilized for the sake of avoiding love, you've chosen to protect yourself over doing that which could have benefited another. So when we avoid expressing love to another, another individual, it's usually because we're fearful of something related to them. Now this, just taking God out of the equation, there's a lot of things why we fear. There's a reason why I feared the opportunity to go into another relationship after my engagement broke off. Because I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of further hurt. And I didn't want to go through that again. And I was afraid of hurting another person, as in another woman. And I was afraid of sending my friends back to Kansas again without having flown on the tickets they paid for. So there's a lot of things that you can fear. But let's talk about the love side of it a moment. If you know that a friend is struggling with symptoms that could be that they are very sick, and you knew that they could get help, would you not share that with them? Would you not speak to them and say, hey, I'm noticing something's not right. Shouldn't you go get checked? A loving friend would do that. A person might choose to withhold that information, their observation, because why? They're, they might be afraid that it's crossing the line of being inappropriate. It's not my business. They might be upset with me for pointing that out. So maybe, perhaps, sometimes we withhold when we know that there's information that might help them. Which then leads me to this. Is there not a greater opportunity to show the greatest amount of love when you show and tell somebody about the good news of Jesus Christ? I mean, if the greatest love story of all time is known by you, but it is not known by somebody that is a friend of yours, and you choose to withhold it from them, what is dictating your life? Love or fear? fear. And what are we usually afraid of when we choose to withhold the story of Jesus Christ? We're afraid that they might not like it. We're afraid that they may respond in a way that we don't like. We're afraid that they might reject us. We're afraid that maybe we might get mocked. The list goes on. But quite frankly, by choosing to withhold the greatest love story of all time from somebody that you know and you love and you withhold that story from them, you have to ask yourself, what fear is driving you? Because it's not love. God says, perfect love casts out all fear. Verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So whoever claims to love God, 
yet hates a brother or a sister, a person that they can see, God just basically calls you out and says, you're a liar. If you claim to love me, but you don't even know and aren't even willing to love on those you can see, how can you claim that you love me? So the charge is love. If you love me and you've received my love, love those that are around you. Love them extravagantly. Love them without condemnation. Love them without fear. You see, that's the ultimate expression any of us could ever do is to love on a person where fear is not the guideline. Love dictates our actions. So my question to you is, when I say the name Jesus, and you think of Jesus, what do you feel? What do you feel? Do you think of him as kind of like that uncle that you see at all the family gatherings, that you would say, yeah, I love my uncle. But do you spend time with that uncle? Probably not. Have you had experiences with that uncle that you could get really excited about? Probably not. But you could say, I love them. But it's more because of who they are within the family than it is about a heart relationship. You see, many of us approach Jesus as just some figurehead that we've read about. What if you, I was to tell you that it's possible for if when you think of the name Jesus you immediately begin to feel the greatest sense of emotion that would describe how you would say a very on-fire love between a husband and wife would look. You see, when I think of Jesus now, at this stage in my life, I am overwhelmed by who he is and what he's done for me. The next question I have is, if, what do you feel when you think of Jesus? Is it distant? Is it an acquaintance or is it intimate? Is it passion? Is it, is it an intense love? And then what I have to ask is, if, if you feel that, my next question then is, is what you're known for love or being careful? Are you known for loving others or are you known for being extremely careful? You'd play it safe. You see, I think culturally, especially in northern Lancaster County, we play it safe relationally. It's part of our way of veiling the fear. What does love look like just with a neighbor, with a friend at work, with somebody that might know us and we interact with every day? What would acts of kindness actually might do for them? You see, I think that if God is birthing something in us that is from him and it's love, there's going to be some kind of example or manifestation of that from our lives. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, that used to be me. There used to be an example of love that would come out of me. And I used to feel such passion for Jesus, but right now I feel numb. I feel numbed out. And then I ask you, what would it take if you had a marriage on the rocks or a friendship on the rocks? What would you do to rekindle that marriage or friendship? Just even using my example, if, if for some reason my relationship with my, my bride, my wife, was struggling, maybe I need to put her coat on for her again. It may sound so simple, 
but starting to look back at the things that I did that when I wooed her heart, maybe I need to consider those actions with Jesus. When I fell in love with Jesus and when I knew the love of Jesus, what was going on in my life that led to that? Maybe I need to go back to that space and begin to repractice some of those things in, my, in regards to knowing him. You see, in Revelation chapter 2, this was what God said to the church of Ephesus. And, and he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wickedness, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Well done. But yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. So even God says, if your love has grown cold with him, go back to the beginning and fall in love with him all over again. My advice might be to read the book of John. Rediscover Jesus. Read about his heart. The book of John does a great job of showing the heart of Jesus. Read that story as one great love story towards you. Maybe you're more visual and you need to see it on display. Maybe you need to watch the passion of the Christ again. I'm very visual. So when I see that movie, I think, why would he ever do that for me? Why would he put himself through sacrifice that he didn't have to do? He could have at any point through that suffering chosen to walk away from it, and he didn't. He stayed the course. Why? Because he loved you and I. That stokes the fires in my heart again. Just even talking about it right now, knowing that Jesus went to the greatest end to show his love to me and to you. It has been my prayer this week as I've prayed for this sermon and for you that those who hear this, that have known Jesus in the past but maybe their love has grown cold, that God would reignite the fire for his son because you become aware once again of the great love of God manifested in Jesus Christ. It's also been my prayer that if you walked in this room not knowing Jesus, that you will go on a journey to discover the greatest love story ever written that is true. Let's pray. So God, do your work in this moment. Reveal your love. Take away the veil from our eyes so that we can see your heart and somehow understand that this great love that is sown in our hearts is an opportunity to show love to a much needy world. The world is lacking this kind of love. And we have the very answer within our heart and within our minds that can come through our lips and our lives. Let that be so. To your glory, in the name of your son, Jesus. God, woo our hearts. May we here this morning not walk out of here so numb, so calloused. Woo us to your heart. Cause us to look anew and afresh upon your son Jesus, the full manifestation of your love. Help us to see 
what you would like to accomplish in and through our lives. Where we can be ambassadors of that love in the lives of others who are desperately in need of it. So God, just may, what happened today, just be that pinprick that just breaks all the ice, that breaks all the calluses, and helps us feel again. Thank you, Jesus, of not only coming out of your love for the Father and the love for us, but manifesting that love to the greatest end, serving and building up, dying, so that there is no more fear of death for those who are in you by faith. So may, Lord, any veils that were over eyes covering us to help us not see, may those be ripped apart that we can now see, see in full, that we may pursue you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. If you'd like to talk with someone or to pray with someone, we'll have people underneath the cross. They'd be glad to pray with you and talk with you about the love of Jesus. But I'd like us to conclude with the reading of the passage found in John 13 that we ended with, or that I was in the beginning of the sermon. A new command, say it with me, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless.